nonetheless, I was like, yeah, this is not Beck, but this guy sitting next to us who had to have been on like something was just like, yeah, um, this is Beck. He does this. Like that, that was his explanation. He does this. <laughs> he does. He does this. Yeah, like, he does this. Yeah. Just shows up, plays songs no one's heard real bad. <laughs> yeah. That's his deal. I remember I mean, we were like. That's kind of my deal, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thrust podcast. Today we're going to be talking with Luke Tweedy, uh-huh. a recording engineer extraordinaire. Howdy, fellas. Hey, hey. what's going on, Luke? Uh, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing all right, thank you. Well, that sounds Great. good. We, we were just talking about uh, earplugs and how, uh, well, I guess I was the one talking about it. And I was making Eric listen to the sound of my voice. Mm-hmm. And um, we were talking about earplugs and how I used to hate earplugs when I was younger and even uh, uh, chastised people who wore them, mm-hmm. like thinking mm-hmm. that I was like somehow superior, that my ears could not sustain any damage from yeah. like noise shows. Did you ever have that problem at all, Luke? I have worn earplugs at shows a lot. And I, I'm one of those guys that will like go to the bar and get napkins and wet them and mm. jam them into my ears. Yeah. Uh, I realize that, you know, the older you get, the less hearing you're going to have no matter what. So why tempt fate? Sure. Yeah. yeah I, of course I'm speaking, I'm speaking from an, an experience of when I was younger. I mean, eventually I just figured, Hey, these earplugs are probably a good idea. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, but they definitely made you uncool. I mean, right. there's no way around that. Right? Well, well, now it's now I'm really uncool because I actually wear the headphone earplug things. Oh, nice! Like, and you walk I, around going, huh? Yeah, <laughs> like I'm listening to like rap music or what? something, you know? Well, anyway, wow! Thanks for being with us, Luke. <laughs> hey, thank you guys so much for letting yeah. me invade your space. Oh, absolutely. Digital dude. space. <laughs> we'll dude. just start off the rails. That that's how we'll do this interview. Yeah. yeah. We'll start off the rails. <laughs> we'll just and we'll never get back on them either. Yeah. Speaking of uh invading your space, uh, there's a lot of people that have invaded <laughs> your space out there at Flat Black Studios, Luke. Oh uh, man, I love it. I love it. The more the merrier, I say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's a fantastic place. Of course, I just recently recorded there, and um, it's awesome. You got it. You got a great thing going on. So, um, I don't know. Uh, how about we just start off? Uh, can you give us a history of kind of like how you got started with recording and what led up to where you are now? Well, I guess I would say that it started a little over twenty years ago. I was living at the time with my cousin. We were out and about one day, and uh, we came home. This is a pre-cell phone era when you still had answering machines, the old Mm -hmm. beeping light letting Mm -hmm. you know that you had a message when you got home, (laughs) and came home, and there was a message that his mother had been involved in a motorcycle accident, and she was being life-flighted to the University of Iowa Hospital. A couple days later, she passed away and he moved promptly from Iowa city back home to move in with his brother and sister. So they could kind of all process and deal with the immense trauma and grief of that situation. 
six months or so passed by and he came up with a tape, a four track tape of some songs he had recorded. And he asked me if I would listen to it because I'm a pretty straight shooter. I'm, I'm, I don't exactly know how to sugarcoat things. I just say what I think. Some people think that's being an asshole or whatever, but I just say what's on my mind and for better or worse and take the consequences as they come. And so uh, I was honest with them and I thought that they were incredible songs, like played well on a national level, but the recordings were atrocious. Uh, it was like a, you know, what, what you, what a guy could do with a hundred dollars 20 years ago for recording mm-hmm. equipment. Yeah. Uh, and so I said, man, if you focus on this and make the, you know, if you could write this quality of material and you focus on this and really start to make this your thing, don't worry about a job. Don't worry about anything else. This could be your life. Like this, I don't think I'm blowing smoke when I say that I think mm-hmm. you could really turn this into something. And I think I could help you because I'm semi-technically minded and I think I know what sounds good. I've got a decent enough ear for music and I can help you capture these. And so, you know, we started working together and that was, like I said, roughly 20 years ago, maybe just a hair longer. And, uh, he has helped me build a few studios and he and I have made, Oh, maybe 10 or 12 records together by this point. Cool. But in the meantime, you know, he's not the only person that's in here recording. Oh, and that guy is William Elliot Whitmore mm-hmm. for people that sure. don't know that we're cousins. And, you know, he's made 10 or 12 records in here, but if I'm going to do this, you know, equipment's not going to do it. And a studio space isn't going to do it. Those I know so many people that think if you buy a fancy mic or you get pro tools or whatever, or you get yourself a space like, Oh, and I'm a studio, I'm an engineer. And really the thing is hours. How many hours are you willing to work on your craft Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. how much are you willing to devote yourself to that craft? And if, you know, I've heard people say 10,000 hours or whatever, Mm -hmm. 10,000 hours. If a person works 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, that's 2000 hours. So that's like five years of practice. Uh, I would say at bare minimum for recording. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) There's just so much to know and there's so few people to glean the knowledge from. So you have to do it with books and you have to do it with YouTube videos and a bunch of hearsay and, Oh, my buddy did this, but really it's just experiment, experiment, experiment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like uh, some people have the ear, you know, and then some people have the technical know-how, but it re- you really do have to work on whatever you're lacking in to to get to those levels. So, yeah, I think that's really cool advice. And, and the other thing is, you know, so many people are like, oh, man, that job must be so cool. Man, at times, it is the coolest. And when you're <laughs> recording something that you can get behind and, you know, when music is like, you know, what you truly love and you get to record something you like, it's one of the best feelings in the world. But the flip side of that is if you're recording something you don't like, it's one of the worst things in the world. Uh, I mean, the, when the thing you love the most turns into the thing that you dislike the most. Right. <laughs> and I'm a, you know, there's all different people have different philosophies when it comes to recording. Um, some of my philosophies came from how I was brought up and experiences that I have had. And so, so I know other engineers around Iowa or around the Midwest mm-hmm. that are 
borderline producing engineers, if you wouldn't mm -hmm. just call them full-on producers. Yeah. I very specifically do not want to be known as that person. Mm -hmm. I don't want to tell people what their music should sound like. I do not know their songs when they come in. They come in, somebody's in, and they're in for three or four days. I'm just starting to learn the material by the time they're walking out the door with a record. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I have no right to tell somebody what their record should be. I want to help them document it in the best way possible. And I want to empower those people to produce their own records. Mm -hmm. But I will never tell a band, you know what you should do. Your song should be like this. I'll never rearrange something. Yeah. I might make a suggestion if I think something is done poorly and they can do it better, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to have somebody change anything. Yeah, we we talked to uh, Moscow Puzzles recently, and uh, those guys are great. Yeah, we Absolutely. sort of discussed how you guys uh, had sort of a common language of sorts, so it was easier to kind of find the sounds that you wanted. I I was wondering if if sometimes it's hard to translate uh, what someone else thinks it should sound like and, and make that happen. Or have you just done it so much that you insta instantly can be like, I know exactly what that setting is? Well, I mean, if somebody's like, oh, you know, I, I think the vocals need some more space and like, oh, you're talking reverbs and delays and right. stuff like that. Yeah. Or uh, do you th feel like the vocals are getting out of control in this part? Okay, you want more compression or, mm -hmm. or whatever. But I've also literally had people ask for like, like more rainbow sparkle <laughs> and like, <laughs> right. well, I think I know what the word sparkle means in relation to sound, but rainbow, you're starting to get into a zone where <laughs> what other words can we use? <laughs> sure. Yeah. But you know, when people give me references, like, you know, somebody like uh, the Moscow puzzles are saying, Oh, we like things like Dianoga. We like things like Don Caballero. Mm -hmm. Um, we're into math rock stuff of the late nineties and early two thousands. Like, Oh, okay. Now I understand what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, come to think of it, I believe that over at least over half of the guests we've had on the show have recorded with you, Luke. Oh, we that's also, awesome. Yeah. Also ill omen. That was a recent, mm -hmm. uh, that was actually the last episode. Yeah. And, they uh, were the last band that was in the studio too. They just nice. did, uh, they're working on a split with frontal assault. Mm -hmm. out of CR. I don't know if you guys know those guys, mm -hmm. but yeah. uh, they're the real deal. I don't know how to put it besides that real wow. deal. <laughs> CR thrash. And I mean, they're serious about it. Who would have thought CR thrash would be a thing? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. There's really like a... It's great. Something... It's a great scene. Yeah. There's something going oh, on I, there. Lo I love that everything's cyclical. I yeah. love when people that are, you know, maybe a younger generation than I am come in and they've got Napalm Death and Metallica t-shirts on. Yes. and like, oh, that's stuff I came up on. And so, like, I was there for first wave of that. But, you know, I would find it hard and this is not clowning or whatever, but it would be so weird to be a younger person and see like, say some kind of monster and be like, you know what? Metallica's kick-ass. Yeah, <laughs> sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, exactly. Like I love the first, you know, some people say all oh, the first three Metallica records. Some mm -hmm. people say the first four, some people will even give them the black album. I yeah. would say I love the first four Metallica albums, but then like yeah. I'm over it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's sure. where I'm at too. 
Sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm a little more forgiving on. We've had this discussion several. Uh, actually, we've had this. Con- we've had this conversation almost every episode. Every episode, it's like we, we talk about Metallica, and then I also bring up Limp Biscuit for some reason. It's like a low key wow. Metallica for no a reason. No. It, it, yeah, it drives Eric nuts because you know we're not we're not too far away from each other in age but enough to where like my the things that were important to me in high school that i no longer care about is like new metal more so than Mm -hmm. like say you know him and probably you as well luke we uh i was really deep into the whole like you know uh backwards red hat rock you know like 98 99 but yeah metallica has come up and, and it's usually my fault when it does. <laughs> well, it, has, it comes up so much around the studio because uh, some kind of monster, I feel like, so one thing in the studio is a lot of bands end up staying out there uh, mm-hmm. when they do multi-day sessions. And, you know, I'm in the country, so that means the internet is maybe not what it is for everybody else. Mm-hmm. So we right. have this this giant old library of, like, old music Blu-rays and DVDs and stuff. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. inevitably, some kind of monster gets watched by, <laughs> it seems like that's been watched 150 times in the studio. I don't know. And yeah. Spinal Tap. And they're kind of the same. Kind movie. of the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> it's so ludicrous because I'll get done with the session and a band will be, they'll crack open some beers. They'll get the grill going or whatever. And somebody will pop that in and I'll just be getting ready to go inside maybe hit the hay or whatever. And then I'll <laughs> sit down to watch the first 10 minutes. And then all of a sudden it's over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just watched the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. a great movie. I don't know if you'll come away from it liking Metallica. Oh God, no! But it's pretty good. It's impossible. <laughs> yeah, that that is weird. Like putting yourself in the shoes of somebody who that's their introduction to Metallica is the yeah, documentary. That would be some tough. kind of monster. Yeah. <laughs> that would be yeah. really weird. Um, I did uh, actually kind of want to go back a little bit to the first thing we were talking about uh, when you first got started. So. I remember watching, uh, speaking of like documentaries or whatever, I was watching a documentary with uh, Just Blaze, the hip hop producer, and he was saying, he was showing like the inside of his studio. And one of the things that he pointed out that I thought was really interesting, and I kind of want to hear your views on this, um, was that you don't need all this equipment. Uh, And you kind of already touched on this, but it doesn't really show anything other than hard work on my part, but you don't need, you know, like the most state of the art, current equipment to make a million dollar record and he used the example of rizza recorded uh enter the 36 chambers on a four track in his basement you know and um so i guess i kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that as well as like uh when you were recording with will for the first time because obviously you've evolved since then with the equipment that you use and obviously probably your techniques and everything uh your knowledge of the craft in general. Um, where were you as far as like what equipment you were using at that point? When I very first started out, it was, uh, so Will had had a tape four track and we were like, okay, if we really go for it, we can get a digital eight track <laughs> with zip drives, nice. 250 megabyte zip drives. <laughs> Terrible. Um <laughs> And I remember quite specifically the first time I bought a condenser mic, which was a Shure 
KSM 27. At the time, those were $299. And I was like, have you lost your fucking mind? Are you really going to spend $300 on a microphone? Uh, like, for what? Like, how many records do you have to make before a $300 mic is paid off? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that's where I was at at that time. Because I used to travel around. I had my digital 8-track. I had some headphones. I had uh, some 57s, couple 58s, and I had it all in an old ammo case, and I could take it to people's house and record them in this 8-track. So, like, when I when I first got allowed to make a professional record for Will that was going to be on a label, was going to be on vinyl, you know, was going to be the real thing, that's when I was like, okay, it's time to buy a computer and learn how to use Pro Tools. And I bought a Digi O2 rack, which was a very old interface for Pro Tools. And that was when Pro Tools was on Pro Tools 6. So that was like 2006. Very, very poor equipment by today's standards. And I think you could make world-class records on those. Mm -hmm. Where I would agree with Just Blaze, like you don't need all this equipment. That is true, especially mm -hmm. in the hip hop world. Mm -hmm. You start to record drums and okay, you you know, multi-miking drum techniques is obviously gonna yield better results, whatever. Mm -hmm. But the more equipment you have in a lot of ways, the easier it is. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I could make a record, I think I can make a killer record today on a four track with just a couple mics, but boy, would I not want to? <laughs> yeah. It would be really difficult to mm -hmm. do. And we live in an era now with digital technology where like unlimited track counts and even the the plugins that just come with whatever your native DAW is, like, oh, every DAW out there has an 1176 and an LA-2A, and some sort of a graphic EQ, and some sort of a, a mastering limiter, and a decent enough reverb, and a decent enough delay. And like, you know, you, you go back and like, if you ever read any of those 33 and a third books, mm -hmm. read about like when Velvet Underground recorded self-titled or Andy Warhol or whatever you want to call that record, mm -hmm. like they spent $3,000 a day over the course of three days making that record. And that was a four track studio. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And that was 1960s money, 3000 a day. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> like what would that be by today's standards? Four or 5 million. Probably not. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, it would definitely Quite be thousands. Yeah, it would. That's yeah. for four track. Have mm -hmm. you ever encountered anybody? Like, uh, has anybody ever come in and said, well, we want to, try and you know record like well do you have the cap you have the capabilities to record like analog at the studio don't you luke so the current setup that i have is a pro tools based setup but i have a uh mci jh 110 revision a which is a quarter inch two track mastering deck hmm. and on occasion people will want something to tape and what i generally do will be track it into pro tools and then get a sub mix going so like let's say we get a really great mix of the drums but we record for an hour or two hours or whatever and get the right take of the song then we'll get a mix of the song 
dump it onto tape and then bring it back into Pro Tools so we can get a little bit of the EQ curves that tape imparts, a little bit of the compression that tape imparts, but without doing all the takes on tape. Sure. Is there ever anybody who's like, oh, we don't want anything digital to touch you know, this recording or anything, just out of curiosity? Uh, I do know bands that have recorded that way. I would tell if anybody reached out to me and that was what they were going for, I would recommend somewhere else. Gotcha. I would not make a record in 100% analog anymore. I don't see the benefit in that. And are you telling me that it's not going to end up on streaming platforms? Right. Are you going to take it from mm -hmm. the master tapes and do direct metal mastering mm -hmm. for vinyl? And then the only release will be records. Sure. Like, come on. I think yep. there is a bigger difference in a half inch placement of a microphone on a drum than there is between analog and digital. Mm -hmm. Sure. And mm -hmm. to people that do it, Mm -hmm. And people that do it well, you know, there's, you know, the Steve Albini's of the world to mm -hmm. like the Travis Adkinson's, uh, you know, he's a guy that has a studio or had a studio in Iowa called strange bird. Uh, I respect the hell out of it. It's amazing. Sure, um, absolutely. And it's a, just a different speed of recording. I pride myself on working very quickly because part of the reason I got into this was because people can't afford a world-class studio. And, uh, I have world-class gear, world-class microphones, tens of thousands of hours of work in studios. Um, and I can still, I make records all the time in just a few days, three days, four days, maybe five days. And, you know, anything five days and above, I really feel like, well, look at me. I got all the time in the world, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is amazing. Um, but I, you know, I, I try to be very, very, very conscious of the people are spending real money that they worked real jobs. And I'm very um, conscious of the fact that yes, I'm, I have a real job. Yes. It took a lot of work, more work mm -hmm. than people could possibly know to build the studio and mm -hmm. to acquire the gear and acquire the knowledge. But I ain't digging ditches and I ain't scrubbing toilets. Right. Sure. And nobody's life <clears throat> depends on my job. There's nobody bleeding out or, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so I, I understand that I'm in a place of privilege and I'm very fortunate to do what I do. And people are doing much crappier jobs to come into the <laughs> studio. So I try to work sure. very quickly. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I was going to ask about, you talked about building the studio. So did, when you moved uh, to the current location, was that more like you, did you feel like I'm out of space and I have to expand? Or was it like, if I'm going to grow, I need to expand? So there was a lot of reasons for moving. Uh, one was always, my idea was always, what do I feel like the world does not have? Mm -hmm. And there are resort style studios out there, you know, your pachyderms or whatever, where, you know, people can go, they can stay, there's other stuff to do, there's kitchen and shower and all that, beds and all that, but those are exceedingly rare mm -hmm. and they are very expensive. Uh, I don't charge one penny for people to stay here. If you book a session and you want to crash there that night, I don't care. How does it, how could it possibly adversely affect me? And mm -hmm. this job is not a money grab for me. I never went into it as, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get rich. 
I went yeah. into it with the mentality of I'm super lucky that this is my job. And so treat people the way I want to be treated. Part of the reason why I moved was as much as I love this job and as important as this job is for me, it's not the only thing that's important to me. Another thing that's important to me is having a good relationship with my wife. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And being a dad. And mm. so when you've got a studio that is literally attached to your house, as my last one was, even when you double the walls, double the drywall, double the insulation, when on the opposite side of the drum room wall, even though it's doubled walls, doubled insulation, uh, freestanding walls, all that is your child's room <laughs> and yeah, bands. Yeah. It's hard to get bands to like, oh, yeah, we're going to work nine to five today. Right. Yeah, right. Yep. That is so <laughs> yeah. exceedingly rare also. So yeah. it was a situation of if I'm going to continue doing this, it's time for me to build the thing that I think people want. Mm -hmm. And what I feel like people want is a standalone building. I feel like they want 24 hours of operation. So if a mm -hmm. band, there are bands that will, uh, the band that's coming in on Saturday wants to work mm -hmm. 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. because they have a thing that evening in Cedar Rapids. Mm -hmm. The band that was just in last week, they came after work and show up at six o'clock at night. Sure. So, and that's impossible in town. And yeah. it's impossible mm -hmm. when you've got a child in your home and you're recording out of your house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That all makes perfect sense. Cool. Yeah, Plus absolutely. you got to sort of design exactly what you wanted, right? Instead of trying to conform a, uh, an existing space into what you wanted, you sort of got to set up I mean, the, it's within layout, a, right? it's within a barn. So there are, you know, there were shapes that were there, but mm -hmm. there were also things walls that were taken out and things that were changed around. And yeah, it was much easier than in a house where people currently live. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the, then I guess the other reason was, although I was busy in Iowa city, I was not the level of busy that could be a provider, I guess it was enough that like, Oh, living that punk rock lifestyle. No problem. I can live on this, mm -hmm. but like, Oh, I have to be able to attract people from farther away. And so I have to design something because there's a studio in every town and there's a studio in every college town. There's studios, there's multiple studios in the quad cities, multiple studios in CR. There's multiple studios in Iowa city, Des Moines, everywhere across the Midwest. Everybody's got a studio. You buy an interface, a thousand dollars worth of mics and a couple speakers and your air quotes, a studio. Mm -hmm. So how do you differentiate yourself? Work more hours for less money, make more records, and get better. Absolutely. Just out of curiosity, Luke, uh, has your uh, children do they have they expressed an interest in what you do at all in any way whatsoever? Like, do they want to learn the ins and outs of recording at their age? You know, I think any parent would say they want that for their mm -hmm. kids on some level. Um, and my son showed some interest in guitar and took some guitar lessons and planks around on it a little bit, but he's still a little bit young. Right. My daughter, she likes music, but she doesn't care about performing it. She's a, she's a very shy child and she is really into visual art, which I too am into visual art. Mm -hmm. So, and I don't want to force anybody to do anything. If you're into it, I will support you in every way possible. I will figure out what I can do to 
make it easier for you, make it more accessible. But if you're not into it, any parent that tries to, I was into baseball, so I'm going to make my kid play baseball. Right. Cool, your kid's going to hate baseball. Right. Yeah. Well, you mentioned visual art, and I know that you did some covers for Will's records. You've done other poster art and other album covers for your projects. Is that something you still are able to find time to do, or is that part, or is that sort of a hobby, or is it still a big part of what you do all the time? So for years and years and years, I tried to figure out how to monetize being an artist, a visual artist, and I never could figure it out. Uh, people seem to show interest on it. in it. People would always ask me, hey, man, would you make a poster for this or would right. you design that? But the amount of hours that go into it, like all the posters I did weren't done on a computer. They were done by yeah. hand and hand-drawn and revision after revision. And a poster gets done for a show that's at like Gabe's Oasis in Iowa city where I spent 40, 60 hours working on it and then go and uh, maybe one of my favorite examples would be um, when 10 grand, that old screamo band from Iowa city released, this is the way to rule. I drew and then painted their posters the best that I could. I took the time to get them copied, signed them all, then I framed them mm -hmm. and brought them to the show. I framed 10 of them with a sale price framed, <laughs> ready to be hung on your wall of $10 a piece. <laughs> so the best thing that could happen if all 10 of them sold would be, uh, uh, you know, after the cost of frames and everything, what I'd walk with like 50 <laughs> bucks. Right. I think I sold three of them that night. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Total loss. It was like, man, I can't, what am I doing this for? No, if nobody cares about my thing, yeah, you know, uh, yeah. and it's not that I don't, I think people do care about it, but it's, it's hard to monetize art. Any right. musician can tell you the same thing. Like, Oh, if the answer is, you know, do the Wu-Tang route and make an album that you can sell one copy to a pharma bro for <laughs> millions of dollars yeah, or yeah. make it a loss leader to try to get people to come to your shows. Mm -hmm. Most people are going to be a, make it a loss leader. And yes, I appreciate the Wu-Tang Clan for doing that thing, but they were at a point of privilege in doing that. No starting artist can do that. So the monetization of artwork is... And it's important and artists deserve to be paid for what they do. And the idea that, oh, it's this punk show. And so we can't pay any money to go and see this band or whatever. And let's, you know, see it for free or, hey, let's just steal the music or download the music or listen to it on the crappiest of all streaming services where the artist gets no money. It's, you know, I'm not here to lecture anybody. People can do whatever they want, but it's a, it's, it's terrible for art. It's terrible mm -hmm. for the artist. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you the number of bands that come in and they don't know the next move. Yeah. You know, a band that says, we're going on tour. We're going to play in the Quad Cities in Des Moines. And like, that, but that's reality right now. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. With the, the posters, especially, I can, I can, I can relate. It was always like, you would get asked to do a poster and you would do it. And then it's like, Oh, here you, you get into the show. It's like, oh man, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Put a lot of work into that. That, and that, that you know, five dollar show. Yeah. Here's your five dollar right. ticket. People deserve to make money for the, the for what they do, and not because it's greedy or whatever, but because time 
it's has labor. value. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. labor. You're putting your skill set into something. It's the same reason why bands deserve to be paid for shows. And the more people that give stuff away for free, the more they undermine everybody else. But they're yeah. not giving themselves a path yeah, to success. Absolutely. It's short-sighted. And I play the game myself because, like I said, I want to record as many people as I can. So I do it for as cheap as possible, but I don't do it for free. Yeah, I, I remember you were kind of one of the first advocates, Luke, that I remember being really adamantly about like $10, $15, like local shows as opposed to just, you know, $3 and stuff like that. So that, you know, the I bands... wrote an article saying that $7 was the new $5 and what I used um, Fugazi as an example, because mm-hmm. the punk kids would always talk about Fugazi did shows for five bucks. Mm-hmm. Well, I saw Fugazi in the mid nineties and no, they didn't. Their $5 yeah. shows that was in 1987 and adjusted for inflation at the point at which I wrote that article would have been $14 a show. Mm-hmm. And today it would be almost $20 a show. Yeah. So the same people that came back on me, there was a few local mouthpieces within the Iowa city punk scene that really criticized me. $7. Don't tell us what to do. Well, first of all, I wasn't telling you what to do. You can have your shows for free if you want, that's up mm-hmm. to you. But if you want to see a future in this, you should consider, I'm sure you wouldn't work your job for free. You know, I'm sure you have these certain values that you you attribute to other labors in your life. But those same people now are doing their shows at ten dollars when I said seven and they made fun of me. And that was just a couple of years ago. Hmm. Well, you know, it takes takes money to to put that stuff on, you know, and I think I think when it's like setting up a show at an existing venue or something like that seems a little easier than opening up your home and like providing the space and providing the the sound and you know, all that stuff. It's like you, you have to invest a little bit to put on a show and you should get some of that back. Well, and even if you uh, uh, do it in an existing venue, uh, like let's look at examples like in Des Moines right now, the Des Moines Mm -hmm. scene is very tough because you lost vaudeville muse gas lamp is going out so now like some of the new smaller venues would be like xbk right well xbk to play a show there the first 250 dollars of the show goes to xbk and then 10 percent. and this is no trash on them they have operating costs but the first 250 goes to them and then 10% of everything above that. So if you're a local artist that's got two other bands playing, you charge $10 a head and you guys collectively bring 50 people through the door, that $500 ends up being $60 per band. Yeah. <laughs> $60. You got a four piece band. You're walking with 15 bucks after gas. You're walking with nothing. Yeah, and so have here. all the $5 or $3 or free shows you want, but like, it's not sustainable. It has to be supplemented by something else. So you have to work more hours at your day job to play music. But if mm-hmm. you want to value yourself at nothing, I'm sorry, like best of luck. Well, we, we talked a little bit about uh, just now we talked a little bit about, you know, different times. You mentioned seeing Fugazi a long time ago here. We also talked about the cyclical nature of Iowa City. I was just wondering, I've lived here quite a while, and you were here quite a while before I even moved here. When did you come to Iowa City? And like, what was what was going on at that time? What were the big things that got you really stoked about being here? 
So before I moved to Iowa City, I lived in Ames, Iowa, and I had started collecting records and I'd started going to shows, but Ames mm -hmm. didn't seem to have that many shows and they didn't seem to have uh, any records. So I kept driving to Iowa City to see my shows and to buy my records. Mm -hmm. I was like, what am I doing? If this is what my where all my interests are, why don't I come down there and see see what's happening within that scene mm -hmm. and came down here. So that would have been in the late nineties. I, I want to say maybe like 97, 98, mm. very quickly got a job at the record collector, mm -hmm. which was great. Uh, things that were happening in the scene, like within that first year, uh, Will Whitmore's mom passed away. He started playing music. 10 grand was the Vita blue at that time. Mm -hmm. There were bands like bottle dog mm -hmm. Burmese, mm -hmm. um, the Island women, Canary in the mind, mm -hmm. you know, these really, really operating at a high level bands mm -hmm. that was just like kind of mind blowing that these bands that were that good were all in the scene at the same time. And those were the bands I was interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not to mention scenes that were adjacent to the scene that I was interested in that I didn't even pay any attention to. Mm -hmm. Right. Until I got older, you know, your Greg Browns, Iris DeMens, mm -hmm. Pieta Brown, uh, Catfish Keith, all those types of people, Bo Ramsey, Dave Zolo, High mm -hmm. and Lonesome, uh, Kelly Parta Cooper, all that stuff, the trailer record stuff, all that. I wasn't even, you know, I was a punk kid, so mm -hmm. I didn't know about any of that stuff. Or, or I just would hear about happenings at the mill and be like, you know, that's cool. I'm over here at Gabe's or whatever. Right. And so, like, seeing bands like 10 Grand... To me, 10 grand was like, you know, not only were they some of my best buddies at that point in my life, but they were going for it with no playbook mm -hmm. and starting to achieve success uh, just off of sheer strength of will. Just like we think we, we believe in ourselves and we are going to will this into happening. Mm -hmm. And it's going to mean a lot of sacrifices. And those dudes, like, they got out of college and they all agreed to give it a go, climb into a van, and just go for a year and see what happens. And the balls of that, the 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 courage of just, and like I said, strength of will. They just believe in themselves so much. And I just grabbed onto that idea. Will Whitmore did the same thing. Like, well, I'm pretty mm -hmm. good. I'm going to go on tour. I'm going to sleep in my car and whatever happens happens, but I believe in myself. And if I believe enough, maybe other people will start to believe too. Yeah. And that takes some work. Cause it was like, it was like the, uh, book your own fucking life and Atlas in the car era, you know, not even map quest. You know? Oh, for, so, yeah, sure, for yeah. sure. Oh, tons of work. Uh, very risky, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like, Oh man, when, I remember when Will Whitmore, he would play shows and, you know, he definitely liked to drink at his shows, whatever. Mm -hmm. We'd get very whiskey drunk, go out and just get in his car and sleep. Mm -hmm. The sun would come up, he would drive to the next show and barely make it enough money. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes not enough money for food, just enough to put gas in the car to play the next show, play the next show, yeah. play the next show. And just right. whatever it is, like, yep. I remember when his guarantee jumped up to $150 for a show, mm -hmm. you know, he's driving, he's got gas and food and all that and $150 <laughs> show. And like, dude, you have fucking made it. Bro. Right. <laughs> like you're there. 
you're there everything no matter what you're going to be fine for the rest of your life <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean a, i really believe that uh, too like holy yeah. shit man 150 a show why yeah. i mean why have a day job yeah well it's hard like you said uh with the the drinking it's like they give you drink tickets at the venue. They don't give you food tickets. You know? <laughs> Not very many. It's like, if you want sustenance, have some heavy beers, you know, like it's basically bread. When Will, <laughs> when Will Whitmore took me and the surviving members of 10 grand over to England in 2004, the shows did come with one food buyout a day. And that was the first time I'd ever been on a tour like that. And my old band, the shadow government had just done a tour with the flying Lutenbachers that ended on a Saturday night in Chicago and Sunday morning, we got on the plane and flew to Europe. And when we got to Europe, I spent all my money for 10 days in England on the first night. <laughs> I spent it all had zero money left, had a couple cartons of cigarettes and, uh, uh, to trade for beers and then like one food buyout a night and drink tickets and like, Oh, it was fine. <laughs> it was fine. Like, yep. That's all. As long as, yep. I got one meal a day and a few mm -hmm. beers and everything will be okay. Wow. Yeah. That's <laughs> never again, man. Never again. Yeah. <laughs> Those times, it's easy to view them romantically from right. a distance. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yep, exactly. So, <laughs> oh, sleeping on a floor. Oh, no big deal. Sleeping in the van. No big deal. Yeah, that sounds. Yeah, it's very romantic now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my music project that I'm doing right now, Center Friends. I went mm -hmm. down to Kansas with my uh, former bandmate or sometimes bandmate, whatever, uh, Brendan Spangler, uh -huh. and we went down and played some shows in Kansas, and it was like a, you know, seven and a half hour drive or whatever to get there, and then. We had a hotel buyout and everything, but then like we just had one day where we didn't have a hotel hmm. and already like, yep, I'm old, man. Like <laughs> I need a nap. Like we sleep in the car. We actually, <laughs> before the show, we went to a movie theater and watched the worst movie we could so we could take a nap before there you the go. show. Yep. AC. <laughs> like, where do we go? It's dark. Yeah, it's dark and it's cool. You know, people view tour with this romantic, oh, you get to see the whole country. No, you don't. No. You drive, you get up the next day, you drive and drive and drive till you get to the place. Then you load all your gear in. Then you do a sound check. Then you grab some dinner. Then you come and play the show and you drink your beers and whatever. Mm -hmm. You load out, you go and find a place to sleep. And then you get up and you do it again. You don't see anything. No. You see the inside of a bunch of bars or if you're lucky theaters, whatever, it's not <laughs> like going on vacation. It, it's, it's not like that. Uh, and people think, Oh, it's this thing. That's not what it is. It's super fun because of the camaraderie mm -hmm. and because people are supporting your art and you know, it's something that you're interested in, but people that act like it's a vacation, it's not. Yeah. And the reality of tour, like, you know, when a band says like, oh, we're going to Des Moines and we're going to the Quad Cities or we're going up to play the Octopus or whatever, we're going on tour. Like, that's like touring that's realistic for most people. Right. And, and, and yeah. like I said, even if it's going super well, um, if you're like a grown ass man, uh, <laughs> like, oh, do you have other do you have a day job? Mm -hmm. Do you have a family? Yeah. Like all these things like. 
to go on tour, like if you've got a regular, like a career style job, like, are you going to take your two weeks of vacation right. a year and use it on tour? Well, then you must not have a significant other. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have a significant other and I can't even make it to like shows that are around here, let alone <laughs> try to set up a tour for something. Yeah, play a show. I can't even go fucking or, even, yeah, or even play a show at the moment, you know? Uh, so I was going to ask, uh, you mentioned Sinner Friends, which we reviewed. We reviewed uh, the full length and we also did sort of a makeshift EP out of the singles that you had up sure. at that moment. I do um, appreciate that. My question, I guess, because, you know, I'm into modular synths as well. I basically wondered what your reason for getting into modular synths was. Were you just sort of shown it by someone else and thought, oh, that's cool? Or was it a little more philosophical? I got into it when I read an article in Tape Op magazine mm -hmm. uh, with Ian Mackay of Fugazi talking about recording a record at inner ear producing a record at inner ear for John Frusciante, who mm -hmm. I'm not like a big John Frusciante fan, but I am a big Fugazi fan and I'll read anybody's, any article on tape op. I end up reading uh, whether I like the artist or not. And in that article, Mackay is talking about how John Frusciante showed up with a Eurorack modular synth system mm -hmm. to play guitar through. And he said, well, what is this for? I thought we were doing a guitar record. It is. I'm playing guitar through it. Okay. Hmm. Well, I don't know anything about it. Let's see what it's all about. And then he said that uh, the sounds that came out of that modular synth were stuff you could not get with pedals and hmm. stuff you could not get with plugins. It was a new world that he had been shown mm -hmm. and instantly was like, well, I want sounds you can't get with pedals or and you right. can't get with plugins. <laughs> and so I'm going to build a thing that maybe you can play guitar through it or you can sing through it or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so that's where it started. And then that's exactly not what it's used for. Right. Ever. Uh, <laughs> I do have like an envelope follower that you can like right. plug guitar through or whatever, but I never use it that way. You know, it, it, it they're just kind of like alive, you know, when you hear like Robert Moog talking about how electricity is alive and it has these sounds and, and his, you know, speaking of viewing it philosophically, uh, mm -hmm. his philosophical views on it, like, oh, wow. Yep. When you get into modular synth, you really can start to understand that stuff. Right. Um, and I did not understand it ahead of time. And I had synthesizers but not modular synthesizers mm -hmm. and so i had a hard time understanding what are all the patch cables for and all that and yeah. people look at it and they think of it in terms of like oh this thing is it's so confusing how can you ever understand it but mm -hmm. all synths, you know to me are kind of the same thing there's something that dictates pitch information there's what is making the sound, the oscillator, whatever, mm -hmm. and then whatever's modulating it, and then your envelope, and all, right. you know, all analog synths are that, but just in modular synth, there's just a bunch of those synths next to each other. There's a lot right. of oscillators, and there's a lot of sequencers, and there's a lot of envelope generators, and a lot of LFOs for modulation or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what I didn't understand getting into it, where it seems so daunting, I didn't understand the CV path versus right. like the audio path. Cause mm -hmm. probably same as you, you went into it with the idea knowing a lot about like guitar pedals. Sure. Yeah. Which is audio in 
you know, guitar to right. delay, let's say, and then delay to amplifier. And then you mess with the delay time on the pedal. Right. What I didn't understand is like, oh, you could go guitar to delay, delay to amplifier, but to control the delay time, you could use a CV signal to say mm -hmm. a phaser. So instead of bunk, 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 it would go bunk, 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 bunk. And once it clicked in my mind what was happening, I was hooked. Right. It's a blast. And when I was getting started, I remember talking to you at the mill. We had a pretty long conversation about it because I I didn't know exactly what I was going to do yet. And I was actually deciding between the five U and the Euro rack. And I think you said to me something like, well, if you don't want any cool modules or have it interface with anything, then yeah, go ahead and get the big ones. <laughs> so. You know, that's, that was a jackass <laughs> thing for me to say, because now I have friends that build those five U units yeah. and they're awesome. Yeah. Now my argument would be, well, if you don't want to play those things out, build a five U system. Right. Uh, Cause I built the largest Euro rack system I could possibly carry. But my friend Suit and Tie Guy, or he also goes by STG Sound Labs. Mm -hmm. He owns like Muson Musonics, mm. uh, and he just built some really great modules. But he calls the Five U or American format, uh, mm. as opposed to Euro right. <laughs> format. He calls those man size modules. Oh, <laughs> you know, sometimes those little knobs are uh, a little too little. You know? I, I agree. I agree. Uh, and so like, you get know, some cables I, all around that knob and then you're trying to get in there. It's like, you gotta get some needle nose or something. And by then, yep. the I agree. <laughs> with, like with anything, you know, there's gives and takes. Uh, I want to perform out. I don't perform out a ton, but I'm playing like maybe two shows a month right now. Mm -hmm. And there would just be no way to do it with a five U system mm -hmm, um, right. for me. I, I can barely carry my, my Euro rack synth the way yeah, that it is. You got a pretty big rig going. Yeah. And I specifically wanted to remain in one case. Right. And so I built the largest single case. That's not the only modules I have. I have other racks, but mm -hmm. I swap out whatever my live rig is. And Brendan uh, has sort of a matching rig or did anyway, right? When you guys play together. So I built him or we built those cases at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, but Brendan, he, Brendan still has a, uh, some of his audio modules, but mm -hmm. Brendan has really dove into video modular synthesis oh, and cool. it's incredible. And he's super good at it and nice. he really, really enjoys it. But for me, Euro rack is almost cost prohibitive. It's some of the most expensive gear, yeah. you know, uh, for, you know, a little thing that does just a very small thing can cost right. hundreds of dollars. Mm -hmm. And so even though you spread them out over time, you'll still end up like, oh, I'm in the five figures on, I, you know, I've got a $12,000 rack or whatever. Oh, yeah. When you look at the whole thing together, which I try hard not to do, then it, oh, yeah. it's just like, don't. oh, wow. This kind of actually goes hand in hand with the, uh, uh, I just have a, a question going back to like the studio setup. Yeah, speaking of like, you know, pieces of equipment that you have at your house or at your the studio, Luke. So one of the things that I really like about your setup there is you provide the musicians that come in and record with tons of options. Like if there's like a song where, okay, like for whatever reason, there's 
this amp's not working out. This guitar is not working out. I mean, you have a wall of guitars. You have a, a few amps there that people can try out. The gong, which we talked to uh, Moscow Puzzles about. <laughs> I guess, okay, this is kind of a two-part question. Number one, what uh, what is your favorite single piece of equipment in the studio? And then I guess the second part is, does there seem to be a single piece of equipment that's favored by the bands mostly i mean i personally i would i would just assume it's the gong <laughs> uh the best piece of equipment in the studio is the monitors which everybody uses uh, and people you know they they don't even understand why they're the best thing but when you can really hear everything it's what i spent the most on but as far as the most used by bands easily the studio drums um, oh okay once bands realize that there is a high quality drum kit there, a lot of options with kick pedals, cymbals, and a lot of different snares, uh, that gets used all the time. Now, when you said, oh, you've got a wall of guitars, yep, I probably have maybe 15 different guitars and basses in the studio, uh, probably the same number of amps, maybe more, uh, all different sizes and kinds, but people are weird man everybody's weird i would think uh, i've got a curious enough mind that i would think like oh you walk into a studio that has like an electrical guitar company aluminum neck or a couple and like oh i want to play one of those i've heard about them i've never seen them but what happens so often is i'll get like a let's say an americana band in and the guy will play Telecaster, let's say, and then he will see that I have a Telecaster and he will go and grab the Telecaster and play it. And like, <laughs> well, you, what? <laughs> I've got one just like that. Like, okay, <laughs> but there's stuff that you don't have stuff like. Uh, well, that always cracks me up. Uh, mm -hmm. And then what also cracks me up is when people ask me like, you don't have a Strat here? Well, if you were a Strat person, you would play a Strat, right? Or yeah, you, you don't have a so. Les Paul. Like, well, I've got an SG, but yeah, I guess I don't have a Les Paul. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I guess my tastes are a little more eclectic. So, yeah. But yeah, people do like the gong. There's, you know, I've got like a beam in here, if you know what a beam is. Uh, hmm. Yeah, the modular synth. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, several keyboards and and whatever. Uh, more auxiliary percussion than could ever be used. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's an awesome, awesome setup just with a lot of stuff. I, that's actually kind of, and especially talking to you, that's kind of one of the big regrets I have is not trying out, you know, some of the stuff that you had there. <laughs> well, that was your only chance. So that was yeah, that's the only chance I have. I'll, <laughs> Never going to record at Flat Black again, no. I'm sure, Eric. Not after this interview. <laughs> uh, you know, one thing that I tell people that are staying here, and, like, this is a thing that I always wished, but, like, when a band does come up and stay, and people will stay here even when they live in Iowa City just because, like, it's a vibe, and you can listen yeah. to your album around the bonfire that night while you're grilling and having mm -hmm. some beers or whatever. There's a, a pond that you can fish or swim in, and there's some woods here and whatever. But I also tell people, hey, you know, while I'm not on the clock, take that time to explore. You know, we've got several dozen pedals, like mess around with the pedals, mess around with the guitars, mm -hmm. mess around with the amps at night. And then the next day, hey, maybe this aluminum neck guitar 
that, that's got kind of a bright sound would be really good for this solo. And you'll know that and you mm. won't have to pay for that time. You'll just know it and be ready to go on it. Yeah, that's cool. Wow. Yeah. That never occurred to me. Thanks, Luke. I'll have to remember that for next time I come up there. Well, hell yeah. Yeah, because I remember specifically that electrical guitar company, you know, just because so many bands that I look up to use those types of guitars now from King Buzzo to Steve Albini and whatnot. So, Oh, they sound so cool, too. And they no wooden guitar sustains in the same way. Mm-hmm. And there's just a little different type of sound. They cut through a mix in a different way. They're, they're very interesting instruments. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't oh, want yeah. it to be the only guitar around, but <laughs> I'm glad that they are around. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll just pop over and try one out too. <laughs> do it, do it. <laughs> just like, come on over. Like, hey, I think they're done recording. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just glob on to something. Hey, speaking of globbing on to stuff, I want to glob on to playing some modular synth with you someday too. All right. You know, yeah. knowing that you're into it. You know, my, my setup the... is funny now. Like. You know, when you first start out, you're like, I'm going to get all the, like, I was way into the future sound systems, the throbbing gristle modules and stuff. And like, I have all that stuff. Yeah. yeah they're cool as hell modules, but I just kept getting the weirdest things I could find. And then I was like, you know what? You don't understand what you're doing. You're getting cool sounds. But if someone said, Hey, make that sound again, you'd be lost. So right. I actually at this point have mostly just utility modules and they're all dope for basically just because i think they make nice modules but they're not i mean they're super basic it's like you know i have some dope stuff too so tell me this and you know i know there's different schools of thought on this Mm -hmm. do you have uh the blackface modules where they look like uh old moog modules i do do. i I held out and spent the money for the vintage edition or whatever they're called yeah attaboy i love those that's awesome i mean here's the thing i always say this is like i don't have a ton of gear but what i have has mojo you know and it's like right the reason is is because it's it's inspiring to look at an instrument is one thing to feel the instrument is another and then to play it is a whole nother thing like all those things kind of have to match up so if i'm looking at my modular and it it doesn't have a nice aesthetic to it. It doesn't make me feel like Wendy Carlos. You know what I mean? Like, sure. I don't know. There's something to it. You know, people might argue. And I don't think you have to buy super nice stuff to be inspired. I completely agree. When people say stuff like, oh, analog or digital, whatever, like, who cares? Right. Who cares what gets to the sound as long as you get to the sound? I don't care about plugins versus hardware. Yeah, I have mm-hmm. a lot of very expensive hardware, but I also use plugins all the time. Yeah. Uh, digital versus analog in anything from recording or in synthesis. Who cares? Just get to the sound you want. Who cares how you made it? Like, just you're making it. Don't get hung up on the stupid shit. Make something cool. That's probably the best advice you know, that, that I've heard is, you know, just don't even worry about it. Just, just do it. Like who cares if it's, it doesn't make it any more valid if it's like all analog or all digital either way, you know, just there's yeah, tons somebody of that looks at somebody that's playing out of like, say, Oh, th- that guy's got a, a, a milkman amp with a, a heritage sound, whatever. That's so awesome. He's great. And then they see the guy like, Oh, he's got a, 
third hand reverend guitar through a you know whatever amp mm-hmm. uh and scoffs at that person like what are you talking about who gives a shit taste is everything man it just boils down to taste Mm -hmm. and i don't care how you got there and i don't care how many licks you can play i know every note of every scale and the like who cares i don't care about Mm -hmm. any of that just do cool shit Mm -hmm. right yeah i think people get sidetracked with thinking oh this next piece of gear i get is the thing that's going to make me good or the thing that's going to inspire me and it's like if you if you can't find it on trash you're definitely not going to find it on something that you don't even want to touch, you know? Yeah. I'm not going to go so far as to go down the like Jack white rabbit hole. And like, it might get loud where he's like, I don't want guitars that are easy to play. I want to fight with my guitars and the trashier the better. I don't agree with that. Mm -hmm. And I say he's full of shit for saying that. And that's kind of poser (laughs) shit. Like, yeah, nobody wants an easy to play guitar. It's not, Oh, guitar is so simple that I have to fight every guitar. Like calm down, bud. You're kind of pretending, but also like use what you got. That was the, that's the other thing. And this is a story that every once in a while I'll, I've told, but I don't think I told you guys. And that was when people say, where did the name flat black come from? The name came from when I was a kid, I was like 15 years old. And my older cousin, John Whitmore, Will Whitmore's older brother, he was my first cousin, male cousin to get a car. Uh, and he took these, this car, maybe, I don't know if it was maybe like a Chevy S 10 blazer or something. And he cobbled this wrecked car together, uh, out of multiple parts from a junkyard and whatever. Let's say it's got a blue quarter panel and a red hood and a white, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he, he cobbled this thing that was kind of junky and got it put together, sanded it all down, spray painted it flat black. Mm -hmm. I love the idea of making the best thing you can with what you have available mm-hmm. and just trying to make it the best you can out of what you've got critics be damned uh you know yeah the public doesn't want to see a car that's just a bunch of random junkyard parts put together and oh a bunch of different colors but like hey man do the best you can with what you got if it's mm-hmm. bad gear if it's l- less quality ability who cares just make stuff and the people that are going to hate on it will hate on it. And the people that are going to like it are going to like it. And hopefully as my buddy, Zach Westerdahl always says, just get in where you fit in, man. Yeah. Yeah, It's like at some point, if you show enough of a passion of what that thing is, you can only really get better from there. Uh, skill level wise, you know? Yeah. Just don't stop and don't look to others for validation in what you're doing. If right. you get bummed out because, oh, there weren't that many people at this show. Like you think that's going to get better when you're in your forties, like I am mm-hmm. like, no, mm-hmm. but guess what? I played last weekend and it was one of the best shows I've ever played. And there was only maybe 40, 50 people there, mm-hmm. but it was 50 people that were dancing and screaming. And at one point, uh, these women made a push up line in front of the stage and started doing push ups to the beat. And <laughs> I don't know why they did it. I don't know what the hell was going on, but Whoa. I was on stage kind of laughing and playing <laughs> and just like it made me the shit eating grin on my face was like this, like, this is what it's for. Like, and I can't tell you, I've played 10 crappy shows maybe before Mm -hmm. that, and it was so fun. So get in where you fit in and don't stop.
Nice. Wow, those are Luke Tweedy words to live by, man. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good good spot to maybe wrap it up. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we're gonna get. I don't know if we're gonna get better than that. I don't. You know. can't get any more top tier than that, man. No, that was one hundred percent. That was it. Luke, before we let you go, is there anything, anything else you'd like to say? Anything you'd like to plug? Anything that you'd like to uh, unplug? <laughs> Uh, there's nothing I'm trying to plug. Um, you know, everybody should do what they want to do and do their thing. Um, but the world definitely, uh, if anybody, if I can give any advice to anybody, it's just do your best to support your friends that are making, uh, any kind of art. If you're, if music's not your thing and somehow you stumbled on this podcast, but you know, somebody that does screen printing or painting mm -hmm. or, or writes, man mm -hmm. artists need all the help we can get because everybody is looking for support mm -hmm. yeah that was awesome well thanks for coming yeah. on luke this was a, a fantastic conversation and thank actually, you so much I, for having yeah. me oh absolutely i've been wanting to have, it. been wanting to have you yeah. on for a while so i'm glad it finally happened because uh you know you're you're a huge part of this i just want to say luke uh you're a huge part of this that's happening around here i feel mm -hmm. because I mean, there, you're a place that, um, sorry if I'm going to get, you know, if like you all, start you know, crying, I'll, yeah, I'll exactly. Dance I wish that, <laughs> ah, man, I got to, I, I got to find out how to communicate better, man. Um, no, but, um, we all do what I'm trying to get out here in this moment, this Kodak moment is, um, that I just really appreciate the fact that you, provide a very honest environment where these musicians can just come and for, you know, like you, like you mentioned about the jobs and things like that, we all have hard things we have to deal with in our day-to-day -day life. And if nothing else, you provide two to three days where musicians can just come to a place and get their feelings on tape, you know, and that's I, just very, very important. So. And it's accessible by anybody at any level uh i mean i've had world-class musicians that come in that have tens of millions of streams uh on single songs and i've got people that might not get you know a thousand streams on their album total uh it's accessible by high school kids like mm -hmm. it's just not that expensive to do and it truly is world-class gear and i just want to be involved uh and if that means, hey, I just track your drums and then you bring your record home and you track the rest at home, hmm. great. Mm -hmm. If it means I just track or I just help you mix your record and you you make your whole record at home, I've done that for people, or mm -hmm. just master it or whatever. I just want to be involved in as many things as I can with as many different types of artists as I can. The amount of appreciation I've grown to find for uh, types of albums that when I was a punk kid only, I'd never had appreciation for. I mean, I appreciate so many different kinds of music now. I know everybody says, I listen to everything. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody says that, but do you? Uh, yeah. Like, I listen to punk rock, and then I'll do a thrash record, and then mm -hmm. I'll do a gangster hip-hop album, and then I'll make a country record. And I try to find the good in all of it, if I can. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Well, yeah. thanks again, Luke Tweedy, yeah. for coming on. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. I appreciate what you guys are doing. 
uh, you're putting a spotlight on a lot of people that need a spotlight. Um, and there is important music that's made around here yeah. and there's cool music and it's not all of it's for everybody, but, mm -hmm. uh, if you can just push the flashlight towards some people that are doing something, man, it really helps. So I really yeah. appreciate what you guys are doing. Sweet. Oh, thank you very much. So we'll have to get together and, uh, synth out sometime. I'm going to hold that's you to it, man. I'm going to hold you to it. I don't know if that's the accepted terminology. Is this the possibility of a new Dan band Dan. featuring Luke Tweedy and Eric Whitaker? No. Let's no, find people out. People can just have fun, Dan. We don't have to design the t-shirt yet. Fun oftentimes <laughs> translates hey, into a full band. I'll let you into the show for free. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, sounds good. Maybe $15. That's yeah, $15, get in for free. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> got it made <laughs> good well, stuff good cool stuff. all right well uh thanks to luke and i guess thanks to dan i don't know <laughs> and i'm dead you don't serious have a choice but <laughs> <laughs> um i'm dead serious bands go record with this guy uh i don't see how it can be a bad experience at all all right thanks, cool fellas. yep we'll talk to you later absolutely have a good one luke yep likewise Bye. <laughs> Bye. I listen to everything.